You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It was a late event last night. It went long. The last couple have gone very long. I'm not surprised. I mean, it's a it's a it's a pithy book. There's so much. There's what'll be nice is that it's a book you and I can talk about for you know for a long time for right. these yeah. sort of time without even ever really necessarily referencing too much of the plot. Yeah, without giving too much away. You yeah, hope. you think. Boy, that's a great book. Now I don't need to read now it. Now I don't need to read it. <laughs> you know, I went to NPR. This this trip has had so much has been so fun and mm-hmm. has been such a good time. I went to the NPR studios in um, Washington DC and it was like it was like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory only oh. for ideas instead of candy. <laughs> oh, it great. was so great. Everyone was cool and like their cubicles were full of toys and books and stuff <laughs> and everyone just seems like so excited by smart ideas you know they're just mm-hmm. talking about stuff and oh. it's going to be a shame after the election when trump dismantles it oh don't and don't even moves say them that. no and moves them to the re-education <laughs> camps that is you are talking a dystopia that even i can't handle <laughs> oh my god when he's president he's going to make my dystopia look good uh, yeah well i, I think uh this isn't necessarily a particular dystopia, but we'll talk about that. No, it's not really. A, it's not. That's just like this word, this this term that people throw around. That's like to me a dystopian. Although in some ways it is. In some ways it is mm-hmm. a, a dystopian novel in a, a very traditional sense. Right. Um. You know, but to me a dystopia suggests a society that has been organized along lines mm-hmm. that that make. Free expression and happiness almost criminal and, and, you know, being an individual almost criminal. And and this is more about a a civilization falling into chaos. Right. So I don't know if that's – you really call that a dystopia because that's sort of – broadening the meaning of the world word to a point where – have you ever heard the phrase Mary Sue? Oh, I know the phrase. You Mary know the Sue. phrase Mary Sue? Yeah. That that word used to mean something that was useful. Mm-hmm. That term used to Do you know the term has changed? It doesn't mean the same thing anymore. Really? What does it mean now? Well, so originally a Mary Sue was like if you're a writer, um and you have a character in a book who is like, so you're a 35, you know, white male writer who lives in Boston. And then your hero is a 35 white male private eye who lives in Boston, different, has sex with a different hottie every novel, you know, <laughs> never always says the funniest thing in every scene is like, you know, fights his way and his way out of every situation is just unstoppable. You know, whenever you have a character like that, that's who is essentially a stand-in for the writer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a wish fulfillment, object of wish fulfillment for the writer. That's a Mary Sue. Mm-hmm. And it comes from this, there was apparently a woman who wrote Star Trek fan fiction in the 80s. Oh, yeah, no, I remember her. Right, yeah. right, right, right. And so there was, her hero was a Mary Sue, someone or other, and she, like, knew karate, and everyone wanted to sleep with her, and she was just, you know, un- in- incredibly charming, and when she'd die at the end of every story, everyone would just weep with, you know, <laughs> like, the, the this is the great that all light is disappearing from the world. Um, so that's what Mary Sue used to mean. Now Mary Sue seems to mean any character you might aspire to be. Mm. It's not a stand-in for the writer anymore. It's oh, like really? so. I heard someone describe Ray from um, um, the Force Awakens as a Mary Sue. Mm-hmm. 
and I don't know based on what she's likable and has the force and and you know is oh. is good and are we good and ready to go? I think we are. Is it, you want me to put the headphones on, or can uh, no. I leave them off? No, I'm gonna just. Okay, I'm not a headphones guy. Uh, are we ro rolling? We're good. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, all right. Would have been recording the whole time. <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, that's good. So probably, yeah, it is totally. Well, any of that you can you want to use the the thing about probably the thing I just said about uh you know um, fighting and you know <laughs> blinking your way out of any situation that wasn't the word I used but so oh that's okay is it really it's a, po a it podcast. is a podcast so yeah. I wasn't sure so yeah, yeah okay all right yeah we can uh, and if it goes on to uh, my radio show I just have a nice I have a little tone let's you know something if we let's go ahead and start and if we come back to Mary Sue's I, I'll just repeat my whole spiel all over again <laughs> okay uh, you want to read something. Yeah, do you have something marked out, or do you want me to pick something? I might have you. If, if you don't have something that you know off the top of your head, I always go with the front of the book, because there's no spoilers. Yeah. And like I say, now I do read everything electronically, and iBooks lets me take notes that I can actually, even though my typing is worse than my handwriting, I can at least right. figure out what that Okay, I got a thing I can read. <laughs> okay. I, I actually marked it out in case, in for... Okay, good. This right. is... Uh, I just pulled up. Ten, ten. Fire. <laughs> so this is a bit from the very beginning of The Fireman. Um, and we've got a school nurse in her office uh, looking out the window as she attends to a boy with a black eye. From where she stood, she had a direct view of the blacktop, a few hundred feet of tarmac marked up with a, the occasional hopscotch grid. Beyond that was an acre of mulch with an elaborate playset planted in it. Swings, slides, a climbing wall, and a row of steel pipes the kids could bang on to make musical gongs. Privately, Harper referred to these last as the xylophone of the damned. It was first period and no kids were out now. The only time of the day there wasn't a flock of screaming, rioting, laughing, colliding children rushing about in sight of the health office. There was just the man, a guy in a baggy green army jacket and loose brown work pants, face in the shadow of a grimy baseball cap. He crossed the asphalt at a slant, coming around the back of the building. His head was down, and he staggered. Couldn't seem to hold on to a straight line. Harper's initial thought was that he was drunk. Then she saw the smoke coming out of his sleeves. A fine, white smoke poured out of the jacket, around his hands, and up from under his collar into his long brown hair. He lurched off the edge of the pavement and onto the mulch, he took three more steps and put his right hand on the wooden rung of a ladder leading up into the jungle gym. Even from this distance, Harper could see something on the back of his hand, a dark stripe, like a tattoo, but flecked with gold. The specks flashed like motes of dust in a blinding ray of sunlight. The man who walked like a drunk began to sag. Then he arched his spine convulsively, throwing his head back, and flames licked up the front of his shirt. She had one brief glance at his gaunt, agonized face, and then his head was a torch. Joe Hill is the author of the short story collection 20th Century Ghosts and the novel Heart-Shaped Box. He writes an occasional comic series, Lock and Key. His recent novels include Horns and NOS4A2. His new novel is The Fireman. Thank you for joining me, Joe. Rick, thanks for having me on again. As I read this book, I was thinking, 
about, let's say, 2,100 years ago. A few guys got together, probably had some whatever they could distill at that time, got some whatever they could write on at that time, and thought, let's write a horror fantasy story in which mythical monsters arise because we know that the end of the world is near. We know it. The Romans are coming. Everything's going to hell. The world is about to end. Let's write this book, and we'll call it Revelations. The the first great work of the apocalypse in, in 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 the genre of apocalypse fiction. At least we hope it's fiction. Some people don't believe it is. Well, I think that that's, I think, the point <clears throat> that your book makes, that since that time, we've been I'm pretty much expecting the end of the world any day now. And there have been people who have been pretty quick to point out, oh, look, see that over there? The apocalypse is about right. to happen. And I think that this is something that humans are, in a sense, really queued up to. We're not only aware of our own death, we're aware of the potential for our death as a species. And I think that that's something that really haunts us. You know, I sometimes talk about fiction as being a pair of lead-lined gloves that you use to handle a radioactive (laughs) isotope. Um, Some ideas are radioactive. Some ideas are so frightening and so upsetting that it's very difficult to take them head-on. And um, and we need fiction to explore those concepts in a safe way. Fiction lets us play with all the ideas that are, are too difficult to face in ordinary life. Um, and one of them is this idea of the end of the world, which in fact does happen to every generation. When you, you, you're a human being on the planet Earth, you will live a life and then you will die. And that will be the end of the world for you um it's over (laughs) the apocalypse has come to you and and everyone everyone in your generation your whole generation is you know was born and has had their shot and will live and make love and have jobs and experience things and learn things and will gradually be picked off one by one until they're all gone and your whole generation will be washed away just like footprints on a beach and the tide comes in and whoosh all gone. And that's a grim thought. That is a that is a punch to the stomach that not just will you die, but everyone you knew was going to die. Your whole generation is going to be wiped out and then the next generation will come along. That's the apocalypse. Every generation has feared the end of the world and every generation has authentically faced it for them. So um, apocalypse, apocalyptic fiction is not new. It's been around since well before the book of Revelation. Um, there are Ur texts that go back thousands and thousands of years that's about how we're going to wind things up and it's all going to be over. <laughs> um, we're going through a season right now. In the last five or six years, we've had a lot of zombie apocalypse stories. We've had a lot of stories about asteroids hitting the planet and cracking us in two. But even that is not new. Uh, you know, H.G. Wells wrote a plague novel about everyone being wiped out. Um, that's, you know, well over 120 years ago. Um, Richard Matheson, you know, wrote about the zombie apocalypse in the 1950s. It was called I Am Legend. It was actually vampires. But so this is not this. We're not going through a, a new apocalyptic craze. We're going through. This is a subject that has been tackled by every generation for good reasons. I think, too, that <clears throat> it's not just in fiction, though. I think 
around us. We look at society and we are just terrified of what's going on, that the future is un, is always unknown, right. the past is always gone, and there's only us in the present going, oh, no. And I think that these are like real fears. And I think that what this book does is it takes a slightly different slant. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the, the, the plot of The Fireman... You know, if you want me to set it up, the plot sure. of the fireman is it's a plague novel. Uh, it's the story of this stuff, Draco Incendia Trichophyton. That's the Latin name for it, but everyone calls it Dragon Scale, even the Surgeon General, or at least he did call it Dragon Scale until he burns to death in Chapter 7. Um, the, the This stuff is a fungal infection that gets on your body, and there's no way to get it off, and there's no cure for it. It's not a gross fungal infection like athlete's foot. It's actually very beautiful. It's Your body gets marked up in black stripes with gold speckles on it, and it almost looks like a, a beautiful tattoo. But when you feel anxiety, when you feel stress, it starts to smoke. And if you can't control your fear, you burst into flames and die of spontaneous combustion. And this is everywhere in every nation all over the world. Hospitals are burning down. Cities are going up in smoke. The charred dead are on every street corner. And my story, my story follows uh, one young woman, a nurse named Harper Willows, um, who is both pregnant and infected. And... Because she's a nurse, Harper knows that if she can survive to deliver the baby, her child will probably be healthy. And so she resolves to try to last nine months to see if she can't give the kid a chance at, at, to exist, to have a life. Um, and that's really the plot of the story. I think that for me, one of the things I really love about your books, um, is particularly this in Nosferatu, is and that— And <laughs> NOS four A two. Yeah, right. NOS four A two. I actually, <laughs> I actually titled that so people who are recording podcasts and introducing me and stuff will, will go through a spasm of torment while they try to figure out how to pronounce, you know, that mess of letters and numbers. <laughs> that is, uh, that is uh, mission accomplished. Yeah, sadistic trick, a sadistic trick on radio people and and podcast folks everywhere. Uh, is that you create a world that's so filled with detail and uh, character that we can really go and visit these places. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering, when you start out, do you have a vision of this world that you kind of go and at, like walk around and take yourself on tours of? Or do you kind of start out like uh, with a, a single particle? Is it a Big Bang universe or is it a steady state universe? Um. It's, it's a universe that develops a sentence at a time, a page mm. at a time, a day at a time. I, I don't really know too much about a story when I get started on it. Um, when I begin writing, when I begin writing, I maybe have a few scenes I, I, that I might want to shoot for. I may have a, a central concept. Um, I always I would never begin a story if I didn't have an ex, a concept I was excited to explore. Um, and then most of the first, Six months to 18 months on a novel, I will spend trying to figure out who the characters are who are stuck in my situation. And I'll, I'll spill a lot of material, inventing scenes, uh, creating moments that I may not even use, just putting characters in situations to find out how they solve problems, how they talk, what their voice sounds like, um, what their daydreams are, what their fears are. Um, that's the hard part of the book. It's it's. I think of it mostly as character building, but I guess it's also world building to a degree. Getting to 
a sense of the space they inhabit. Um, that's also part of it. Although it seems to me that the figuring out who the people are is more important than figuring out the you know where they are, because their personality almost always indicates their locale. I think that's really interesting. I had never thought about uh, world building as uh, being based on character blocks. Yeah, an extension of character. But mm-hmm. you know, if if your guy is a car thief. The world he inhabits may be uh, an oily garage with other car thieves. And, you know, you begin to find the character indicates the setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's the standpoint I work from. And I've, I've said for a long time, you know, when I start a story, I, I begin with a crazy concept that I'm excited about. And I can write on that for a couple days. And then after two or three days, I need to have a character um, because... Because an, ideas are okay, a great, a cool concept is okay, but ultimately I care much more about people. So I need to, I need to anchor a story with someone who is interesting and has some secrets that I want to dig into. Then let's talk about Harper Willows, who's yeah. really a wonderful character. You create really fantastic women characters. I think oh, yeah, you seem to. That's a very kind thing to say. That's, yeah, that's a very nice thing to say. Um, you know, I, t- I I'm. Um, I, as some people listening might have guessed, I'm a guy. Um, I, I have never experienced life as a woman. Um, I don't know what that's like. I can only take my best guess and my best shot at it. And, you know, if I get it right most of the time, I think, you know, and, and a woman reads the book and feels like he captured something that's kind of true to my experience, then I feel like, oh, cool, I didn't, I wasn't a complete screw up. I'm, I'm, that said, I doubt I ever get it 100% right. Or, but, but this is a big reason why I write. This is something that I, I love. Um, Harper spends, Harper is pregnant in the book. I've had three kids, but I've never been pregnant. Um, you know, I'll never really know what that experience is like, but I'm curious. My imagination wonders about it, and the best I can do, I can't live that experience myself, but I can write about it, and at least in my imagination, I can consider what it would be like to have your biology hijacked by another creature, a living organism that's that has its own selfish needs. What would that be like to have that thing inside you? That seems so strange. And in my book, it also corresponds to Harper Willows winds up infected and she's got the dragon scale on her. And that is also a living organism. Um, when we catch a cold, we are playing host to something else that wants things that you know from us and is going to take them whether we like it or not. And I just think that would, that's so interesting to have a woman's body be the landscape of a battle. Um, between you've got the baby, you've got the dragon scale, to feel like you're just the landscape, the territory that's being warred over is sort of fascinating. Well, that that's really interesting because one of the things I remember uh, when I read this, uh, one of the things I thought you dedicate it to Ray Bradbury, yeah, who has his famous book Fahrenheit 451, right. Fireman. But the Bradbury story that this brought to mind was not that one. And we were talking earlier about short stories, yeah. And there's a, a great Ray Bradbury short story that is an example of that kind of whole world in a short story is one where a boy is gets a fever and he's has some kind of infection and hmm. but the infection grows and grows until finally he is just 
completely erased and what is walking around in him oh, is that the is infection. Awesome. That's wonderful. <laughs> and it's just one little short story, but it's really intense. And, you know, any kid who's ever been sick knows about that. And, and it captures that childhood fear perfectly, which you take take that kind of same idea and write it at large. Well, and that's, I mean, actually, when you think about it, that's a zombie story, right? Mm-hmm, the sure. idea of being taken over by a virus and then you are you, you are gone and you have been replaced by the virus, which is just hunting around looking to infect someone else. Um, well, of course, and of course, that actually exists in nature. Um, I Before the firemen... I wrote these three supernatural novels. You know, I wrote about a vampire, a devil, and a ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to do something this time out that felt more like it was grounded in actual science. And um, my mom is an amateur mycologist. Oh, really? And she knows a lot about about spores. And I sort of rated her her knowledge base on a routine, you know, as I was working on the novel, I would call her up and, and dig information out of her to see what I could use. Um, my, my fungal infection, my, my dragon scale, it's improbable. Some of what it does is impossible, but largely every, most of what you see there is actually exists to one degree or another in, in nature. And, and for example, this idea of spores of a fungal infection, um, connecting and responding to your brain. Well, if you get a fungal infection on your brain as a human being, you're probably going to have seizures. It's not going to be a pleasant experience. Um, but we know in the in the animal kingdom and in insects that that uh, fungal growths can hijack the brains of ants and wasps and make zombie colonies that are essentially existing to spread fungus, not to do the kinds of things wasps and bees do. We know in the Pacific Northwest that vast colonies of trees have root systems that are connected by fungal growths. And they, the, you know, arborists talk about uh, the, the organic internet where trees are actually able to send signals to other members of the colony using these, these vast fungal colonies that are underground, which is amazing to me because I didn't know trees had that much to talk about. <laughs> you know, like what do, they, what do they have to say to each other? Who well, knew? You know, but apparently they do have some cause to send certain chemical signals to other trees. I don't know. Now is a good time to blossom? (laughs) Well, they're living in a different time scale than humans. I always loved in the J.R.R. Tolkien novels how slowly the Ents spoke. Mm. I always thought he captured something. There's 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 a bit of British humor there in the characterization of the Ents that's just irresistible. Uh, One of the things that I think that makes um, your book so great are, you know, the the uh, the name checks. Yeah, <laughs> and and so we have the a, shout outs to other writers. You mean yes, yeah. and, and also too just uh, cultural checks. Um, you know, music. Something very unfortunate <laughs> happened to Glenn Beck in chapter three. That's true. <laughs> That's true. There is there is. But the thing is, is the thing is, is that we're fish in the pop culture aquarium. OK. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're we're sea monkeys. And there are these giant fish named stuff like George Clooney swimming around above us. And so when you write a story set in our world, I think it's important to include that and to somehow reflect our our own obsession with we have these relationships with people we've never met and are never going to met who are on TV and on the radio who we actually have feelings we feel feels about them you know and so when i write a story i feel like i can i can i can 
sort of poke at that and and create a feeling of impact like we are looking at the world dissolving and uh for me too uh the kind of the way that your characters reveal themselves in a situation in situations of stress i'm thinking of uh jacob i yeah. i love what happens Jacob, I th- even though he's a reprehensible character, yeah, I, I think that what you do to him is a kind of has a there's a touch of tragedy. Yeah, there's a lot of just really awfulness just under the skin, and I think that balancing that out and making that character uh, somebody that we look forward to seeing, although probably going to be bad news, right? Harper's husband is Jacob, and he's a um... He's an intellectual. He's sort of athletic intellectually. He's a uh, um, a narcissistic, self-involved wannabe writer who who loves to hear himself talk. Um, I have no idea where the inspiration for such a character came from. <laughs> you know, it just I was just some somewhere somehow I thought, oh, this would be an interesting bad guy. Um, but uh, uh, I also I did try to show though he he in the face of this crisis he dissolves into paranoia mm-hmm. and he has this he has this you know this terror of infection and you know I think about these I think about these zombie apocalypse stories again I love I mean when I was growing up my favorite movie was Dawn of the Dead mm-hmm. I just I love those stories but it's it's funny when you deconstruct them when you start to think about them I think those stories it's okay if those stories make us a little uncomfortable actually because what do we have here we have a a, a small colony of uh, of the healthy who have the supplies and the food and uh, agency and and then they're surrounded by a sea of the infected who are all dangerous and must be avoided and put it would be great if there was just some way to put a wall between us and them so that they wouldn't infect our safety, contaminate us. And, you know, if we could ban them somehow, you know, this would be so much better if we could keep them out of the country, you know, and, and, and we don't want those zombies to, you know, to infect us. And, and I well, put I, up a wall, right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and I, I think, I think so many of, of those zombie apocalypse stories are, showed this utter lack of empathy for the sick, for the unwell, for the disadvantaged, for people who are not us, for people who are different. And, uh, you know, when I write a story, I want to I wanna be on the side of the unwell, on the unhealthy. The heroes in my stories are all the walking dead. Mm. They are carrying their death sentence right on their skin. And I wanted to suggest these are the people we should root, root for. Um, and so I say all this because I think it would have been very easy to reframe the book just slightly, a step and a half to the right. And and the hero of this story is Jacob. Mm-hmm. He's the guy, the sweaty dude in the cowboy hat who stars in The Walking Dead. Um, you know, And there's was, a great scene where she sees that and understands right, she that She actually perception. says that. She, yeah. says, she says to – eventually Harper meets a fellow named John Rookwood who is this kind of legendary figure known throughout New Hampshire as the fireman. He's he's sick. He's got the contamination, but somehow he's learned to master the dragon scale. And he actually he can actually fling flame about, and he can use his powers to protect the sick. And Harper forms a bond with him. They become friends, and she also sees him as someone who can teach her what she needs to know to survive. 
And she says that she, uh, you know, I've, I've basically been quoting her from the book. She says to her, uh, to, to John at one point, you know, um, Jacob sees himself as the guy from The Walking Dead. He's the hero of the story. We're the bad guys. You know, we're the sick people who, are, you know, feel like we still have a right to exist um, when it would be better for everyone else if we were just wiped out. But Harper's right. They do have a right to exist. You know, um, early... what I'm, what I think what I'm saying here is uh-huh. I think that we should all be ready to hug a zombie. Well, that's... If the zombie apocalypse comes, hug a zombie. I don't know if you remember there... Uh, Mark Ziesing put out a couple of collections called The Book of the Dead, edited by John Skip and... Yeah, John John Skip and uh, Craig Spector? Yeah. I think, really? I, I think the two of them. Yeah. And, and um, Clive Barker wrote the introduction to one, mm-hmm. and he had one of my favorite quotes ever about the, the living dead. He said, here are the great unwashed masses who you really <laughs> want to love, but they're at the door and they want to eat your face. <laughs> Well, I should add. <laughs> and I think add, that's what you ca- that's what you capture about that. <laughs> I, I should add. I should add that I'm being a little unfair to the zombie apocalypse stories. The you know, Walking Dead is you know is a great story. Uh, mm-hmm. Robert Kirkman has done really good work there. I've I always loved the George Romero films, and and those films do have interesting social commentary in oh, them. Yeah. They're hardly you know are hardly crazy right wing you know crazy pants right wing fantasies or anything. I I just you know. I'm, I think writers live in conversation with other writers, that storytellers live in conversation with other storytellers. And I thought this is an interesting new direction to take the conversation in. Well, now that you mention it, I think there's really going to be a big market for crazy pants, right wing zombie apocalypse stories. Yeah, you think now? <laughs> someone said, uh, someone said, how did you, there's a community that terms very toxic and dangerous and violent over the course of the story. And uh, someone said, um, "How did you? How did you dream that up?" And I said, "I just watched Trump rallies." <laughs> <clears throat> At one point, one of your characters says, "Every day is September 11th." Yeah. How are we supposed to live our lives when every day is September 11th? And I think that 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 happens early on in the novel, and that was one of the things that made me think that since September 11th. Every day has been. We've all been on tenter hooks. Mm-hmm. We've all been mm-hmm. waiting for the end of the world. I mean, panic is the climate. Pan- we we live in a pan climate of panic, and this brings me back to one of my favorite hobby horses, Stanislaw Lem, who long ago wrote about what he called the pericolypse, which is not the apocalypse. It's the apocalypse has already come to pass, but it went unnoticed in the general haste. Wow. And, and for him, that, that idea was because there were so many, and this is long before self-publishing was around. He wrote the essay. There were so many books being published that we would never be able to find the five or six books that would save civilization amidst all the trash that was being produced. Mm. But I think in your case or in this case, or in the case of 9-11, I mean, the end of the world happened, and we didn't notice. And this also, uh... I think, I have to say that I think Kindle Unlimited has some problems, but I don't <laughs> think it, we can we can fairly pin the end of the world on on subscription services that glut the market <laughs> with crap no one wants to read. You know, with all due respect, but you know, but yeah, um, go ahead, finish. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was just thinking. He was saying we'll never be able to find the five or six books, books that that could save civilization. And I was just thinking, 
Um, yeah, that it does some online services do make it very hard to find something worth reading. But this is why we have libraries and librarians. Yes, and uh, reviewers and critics. Yeah. They're, they've the the social filters to help us uh, find what's worth our time. I think I think if you if you want to know if you're saying to yourself, you know, I don't want the world to end. I'm rooting for civilization to continue. What can I read to keep civilization from going down in flames? The best thing you can do is take yourself to an independent bookstore or a library and say I need to read the five books that are going to help me save the world. And a librarian or an independent bookstore or bookseller will be happy to put the right reading in your hands. I think, okay, that is one of the most powerful statements I've heard in a long time. Thank you for saying that. I think that's really, really true. Thank you for saying that. That's that's absolutely the case. I think if we did that a lot, that would, A, help bookstores and libraries, yeah. which need help. But also, I think that, Reading itself is a form of meditation. Yes, you, you cannot you you cannot drive and read. You cannot fight and read. <laughs> your 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 the books on your shelf are the antidote to your phone. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got everyone has a degree of cell phone addiction once they've got that smartphone in their pockets. You know, and there's so many bright and shiny distractions there, and people love it. And it is amazing technology. Social networks are amazing. The Internet is amazing. But I think we also crave, you know, time spent in the sanctuary of the mind where no one can read us and we can form our personalities. And the best way to do that, you know, the Zen Garden of the Mind is a great book. Um, and I do mean I there's nothing wrong with electronic books. There are lots of reason to read books on your e-reader. But I, I do think for the maximum benefit, there's something to be said for reading a physical book with the cell phone turned off or put in another room. It's just it's just like, you know, a long bath or a long walk. It restores you and and um, you feel better afterwards and you know yourself better. I think knowing ourselves is better. That's a also that's a great observation. Thanks for making it. I think that uh, this book um, works as a way for us to consider that even when the world has ended, which it certainly does pretty quickly in this book. Yeah. And without sending. Uh, yeah. Without I mean, without a lot of. Uh, Histrionics, I think, uh, and it seems like you know there are there are some big things that happen, and it, the plot is really compelling. But we experience it from one person's point of view, mostly Harper's, and and yeah. and, and that kind of keeps it grounded. But that once uh, the world is ended, people go on. They yeah, stop, exactly. They, the they world, right. It's always. I mean, uh, this sort of takes us back to where we came in. It's always ending for someone. It's yeah. always. I do think in a in a capitalist society, um, you know, being right on the crumbling edge of the world is ideal. It makes things into a seller's market. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever you need, you're willing to pay top dollar for it because it could be the difference between surviving or not surviving. You know, I mean, um, you know, people people live in dread of global warming and rising sea levels, but not the dudes who sell canoes. <laughs> and I think, too, that once you've accustomed yourself say okay well now it's the end of the world and i still have to make breakfast and mm -hmm. i'm still probably going to i might not have to clean up the dishes but i think i will anyway because it bothers me yeah i i think that uh this book captures that and 
Well, I will say that I was interested in, so you've got this dragon scale pouring over the world, and and it is almost, there's no cure for it, and there's almost no way to even study it. It's hard to study an, an illness when the laboratory keeps going up in flames, and the doctors die with the patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got this, this the unstoppable force of this terrible plague. But then you have Harper, who is this incredibly decent, centered woman, who, who takes pleasure in very simple things. She's happy. She sings too loud in the shower. She has a great sense of humor. Um, she likes kissing. Uh, she likes a good book. Um, she she loves. She's got a head full of soppy 1950s and 60s Disney musicals, um, and and she's kind of the immovable object. Her decency is her is and her sense of humor are not luxuries that she's ready to cast aside when things get difficult. They're actually hardwired into who she is. Um, and and I thought when I was writing up the book, I thought a lot about a poem by Jack Gilbert. I believe is called a brief for the defense. My brother also loved the, loves this poem, and he actually he actually checked it. He mentions it obliquely in his book Double Feature, um, and it's in in my family. That's a well loved poem, and it is a poem about how you know even with people starving, um, even a you know even a starved baby will turn its head and look when the women laugh by the well. You know that's one of the lines in it, and it says you know. Um, that that delight and pleasure are not optional, but that we have to feel those things um, to to you know to honor the suffering in some ways. That 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 suffering and happiness are going to exist side by side, and this is nothing to feel bad about. This is nothing to be ashamed about. That that your happiness is like an infection spreads to other people and makes it easier for them to carry their loads. Sometimes, I think sometimes there's just rank jealousy. But it's a beautiful, beautiful poem, and that's what I wanted to write about. So many apocalyptic stories feature characters who are reduced to this kind of bestial level where they're, you know, degenerates ready to claw each other's throats out for the last can of beans. And and when I read a story like that or I come across a film like that, I always think, eh, who cares if humans survive? You know, time for the cockroaches to have their turn. <laughs> I mean, if that's really how we are. And if I was going to write a book about the world catching on fire and seemingly the end of times, I wanted to make the argument that it's, that human beings are worth keeping around, that we're actually affectionate, lovely little monkeys, you know, who love a good shag and love a good book and find things funny and love play. And these are great qualities for a living creature and worth preserving. I think that one of the things that when you were speaking, it made me think back about my experience of Harper and that her compassion and her sense of loving and her sense of play are almost like, in a sense, her most effective weapons, although they she doesn't like use them to fight. Right. But that's exactly what they are. That's how she beats back all, the, the awfulness. awfulness. <laughs> yeah, the awfulness. Several times in the book, she punctures people when people are getting worked up into, you know, a sort of froth of outrage. <laughs> she punctures them with her kind of combination of simple decency. I remember at one point, this sister, uh, this this young girl has flown into a rage about something being stolen. And her younger brother 
has been playing Yahtzee with himself and he's rolled two Yahtzees and he runs over to say, you know, if this is like us, sis, you know, we're two Yahtzees. And, and she, she's just in such a fury. She can't even see him. And she throws something in his face and he runs away crying. And Harper turns to her, to the girl named Allie and says, Allie for shame. After he rolled two Yahtzees. And, <laughs> and I just thought there was something, there was a combination of, moral indignation and humor there that that uh that was fun to write anyway i don't know how people respond to it as readers but i it was really fun to write as a, um, as a kid who spent many uh <laughs> you know vacations playing yahtzees in the cabins in the woods yeah 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 and so that it hit me right in that right place took me back to the yahtzee years um uh, so, um, yeah, so anyway, so, and, and, and Harper's basic stability as a personality, her calm, um, her and her humor is one of the reasons why other people burn up and, and she doesn't. And the book, I, I, no one, I, I hate novels that have a moral, uh, <laughs> I hate novels that have a moral, um, I, that's not the kind of thing I'm interested in writing, um, and it's never been the kind of thing I'm interested in reading. I do think though, that, that outrage burns people up, mm. um, and literally, literally in, in the book, outrage and fear literally turn people to kindling and that her calm and her strength of the strength of her humor and basic decency, um, is her, that's the asbestos that coats her. I, I, when partway through this book, I was thinking, "All right, it's the oxytocin apocalypse." It's the it's the oxytocin <laughs> apocalypse. Well, so the other thing that happens is Harper gets led by John Rookwood to a place called Camp Wyndham, and Camp Wyndham is this small community of the infected, and a couple hundred people there, 150 people there, and they've learned how to control the worst symptoms of their illness um, through shared group activities. When they're all happy together, when they share in each other's happiness, the dragon scale on their body lights up like fluorescent paint and delivers a sort of natural high. And so, for example, when they sing together, when they have a big sing-along, everyone lights up for each other. And for a moment, you sort of forget your own individuality, and you've just become one with the flock, and you're all sort of chiming together and feeling, you know, feeling happiness together. And when she gets to Camp Wyndham, it's a good place, a genuinely decent place where people are happy. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to show how community can build you up. Mishaps occur, and gradually Camp Wyndham descends into paranoia and tribalism. And there's really the people who glow together, who can can bond together, and the people who, who aren't with them. And it breaks along. The camp begins breaking apart along very clean lines between who belongs and who doesn't, who thinks the same and who thinks different, um, who's determined to be an individual and who would prefer to be sort of one with the group, to all speak with one voice. And I that's that was the other side of exploring community, of exploring the way communities can also tear you down. And I think we see a lot of this online. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a way to. I mean, I I've been on Twitter for years and years. I was a very early adopter, and I remember when I got on Twitter, such a wonderful place. It was so much fun. You know, mm-hmm. I made this huge community of people. We joked, we geeked out about about pop culture, we supported each other, and. It was terrific, but it didn't. That didn't really last. And and you know, at some point, two or three years ago, it became a place where if you're a woman or a minority and you express a, an opinion, you could expect rape threats and death threats, and you know, this torrent of ugliness. And and there's no there's no stopping it. It just you know, it's a flood of you know, 
horrible invective. Um, and that's gross. And there doesn't seem to be any way to stop it. And it seems to happen on every social network, you know, not just Twitter, but Facebook and everywhere else. And um, life. And life. And life <laughs> to a degree, to a degree. But but on but on the Internet, um, with with the the distance of, you know, we're not looking at each other's faces. You're on a computer screen. You have anonymity. Um, you know, our reptile brain is really set free oh, and, yes. and you can say things that you would never, you would be more cautious about saying when you have an identity mm. and people can, you know, when you're not protected by the flock. Um, and so there's some of that, I mean, and there's, there's, there's the, the constant state of outrage, you know, which, which wavers between things which are really worth being outraged about and stuff, which is, you know, we just, it shows an utter lack of perspective. There's the public shaming, mm. you know, where, I mean, there's a lot of turds in the world who are begging to be shamed. They're, they're all over the place. It's true. But the question is, do you want to be one of 5,000 people piling on someone online, even if they deserve it? I mean, isn't this kind of like the 18th century when someone's locked into the stocks and people are wandering by to spit in his hair and throw, you know, dried horse poop in their face? I mean, they may have done something genuinely reprehensible, but what does it do to you to join in the gang that's, that's trashing them? Um, for myself, I, I don't, I feel gross at the idea of being like that. I don't want to be online part of a faceless mob making someone feel horrible, no matter what they did. There's got to be a better, um, a, a better, less gross way to have something like decency, you know, a just, decent community. Well, sure. I mean, it's, what do you want to spend your time doing? <laughs> that's well, that's the, the other thing. That's the other thing is, you know, it's how much of your day do you want to spend outraged? Right. You know, do you want to spend most of your day online in a froth arguing with people about whatever, about, you know, whatever the subject happens to be? Or do you want more in your life? I mean, this is also, I mean, in some weird way, I'm sort of swinging back to the idea that books are a Zen garden that you can retreat into. You know, in some ways, I think it's just such a relief to break away from the constant outrage of Twitter or Facebook or wherever you're going online and pick up the book and retreat into the self and clarify your thoughts and get your calm back. And you're, you know, I don't know if I'm talking about other people or if I'm talking about me here. <laughs> no, I, I may, think you're I may, talking oh, about a lot of people. I may who... only be diagnosing my own condition. <laughs> I, well, no, I think that that um, the power of reading is 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 palpable. It's real. And I think that it's underappreciated and that anything we can do to take people out of spending their time saying Things that are either inane, known, or just bit flat out harmful. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's not a helpful uh, perspective. I also think it's. I also think you know that 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 a lot of the social networks are created to are designed to in, enforce and energize these feedback loops. You know, mm. when you express a feeling of genuine outrage about something really terrible, and then you get eight hundred and fifty retweets or 850 favorites, suddenly you you feel like, wow, this matters. I, I'm not just, you know, I didn't just express an opinion. I've got an army behind me. And that's in the book, too. You talk about the oxytocin burst. Right. From, the, oxy, from a... right the, oxy, the, uh, the oxytocin burst is, you know, this is this pleasure chemical that we feel when we get a hug or when we get liked on Facebook. And, and 
you know, and it can be, it can come when you get a hug or you're all singing together. But, you know, when you're in the clan and you pull the pillowcase over your head and you go out marching with all your buddies in, a, in, in their pillowcases, um, you're, you're getting it then too. So oxy, oxytocin doesn't discriminate. It's not like if you're doing something decent, it gives you a blast. All you need is group approval. Um, and I think, you know, and I think if you're on a social network and you express outrage once and, and it may be very honorable, you may have noticed something really indecent and you get this rush of support with other people saying, I feel what you feel, but doesn't that encourage you to be outraged again? Because because you got that flush, you got that charge about that that enormous burst of social approval, which we're all wired to want, you know. And so the next time you're outraged, you're outraged. You're you're the bar may be a little bit lower because it feels good to get that rush of support and to be mad. And before you know it, you know you're expressing outrage about something completely inane, and other people are charging in because it just it just feels so good when we're all on the same page. Nothing is better than you know they say misery loves company outrage loves company mm-hmm. outrage loves a big orgy of you know being surrounded by people who are just as outraged as you as we uh read this book one of the things i i thought was really interesting was you know you have character a lot of really interesting character insights into people who are kind of unsavory. Hmm. <laughs> and I think that, that but to what's nice is that we have we experience this as a feeling of both sympathy and repulsion. Yeah. And uh, I sympathy think that, and repulsion. Yeah. That's an interesting thing to stir up in this kind of novel and <laughs> I wouldn't call it, I would you know I wouldn't call this novel a horror novel cuz Per se, I mean, there are some scenes that are slightly horrific, but I think it's this is more a real um, excursion into the human condition. And the other, I think, template for this is uh, Lord of the Flies. Yeah, well, Camp Wyndham becomes a very Lord of the Flies type place. Mm. But you know, I you know, I said earlier that all, almost everything I've ever written has been in conversation with the stuff that inspired mm-hmm. uh, that inspired me. And I begin the book with you know a bunch of shout outs to a whole bunch of writers and creators and people who moved me and inspired me. We mentioned Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Ray Bradbury's influences on the book Fahrenheit four fifty one. The protagonist of that is a fireman who starts fires instead of putting them out, just like my fireman does. Mm -hmm. And actually, the original title of Fahrenheit 451, it was first published, it began as a short story in Galaxy Magazine in 1952. And the title then was The Fireman. Mm. And I just helped myself to the title because <laughs> eventually eventually Bradbury, Bradbury changed it to Fahrenheit 451 on his way to it becoming a novel. And my feeling is like Bradbury's cast-offs and leftovers are better than most of my original <laughs> ideas. If Ray didn't want it, I'll help myself. Um, um, the other, you know, so and there's, there's Lord of the Flies in the book. There's a certain amount of Shirley Jackson and the lottery. Mm. Um, all that stuff. Camp Wyndham develops an obsession with stones. And oh, if you've yes. spoken out, if you've misbehaved, you wind up carrying a stone in your mouth. And that there's something very Shirley Jackson about that. <laughs> um, you know, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, the big influence on the book, but no one, I don't think many people will see it. it it's so like, this is sort of so, such an inside baseball, just the writer sees it, but I don't know that the reader sees it as well, is how 
how closely the fireman maps to the first six Harry Potter novels. Mm-hmm. Um, I love J.K. Rowling. I love those books. She's an amazing storyteller, almost unmatched storyteller. I've read those books over and over again. And the underlying structure of the fireman is almost identical to what she did in the Harry Potter novels. In the Harry Potter novels, you've got Harry, um, who, when we meet him at the beginning of each book, he's always in a very unhappy domestic situation. And he's strange and different, and he is rescued from that unpleasant domestic deal to a wonderful retreat, a secret place where people are like him. And in that place, he makes friends and enemies, and he learns about his powers and abilities, and he's presented with a series of riddles. And then at the end of the book, those riddles are resolved in a series of escalating confrontations. And that's also the fireman. Right. Um, I know. right you know, Har- Harper doesn't live with the Dursleys, but she does live with Jacob. She doesn't she doesn't have magic, but she does get dragon scale. Um, Camp Wyndham is different from Hogwarts, but it serves much the same function. Um, she learns about controlling and using the dragon scale, not from, you know, a defense against the dark arts teacher, but from John Rookwood from the fireman. And, and you do have these puzzles, like who is the thief in Camp Wyndham and who tried to kill Father Story. And, you know, um, these puzzles have to be addressed before the book can be resolved. And eventually they are in a series of, of increasingly fraught um, set pieces. Um, so so J.K. Rowling taught me how to write the book. Interesting. You know, uh, one fire that runs throughout this book and a theme that runs throughout this book is the idea of terror. Yeah. And this is something, again, this goes back to that 9-11 comment. Um, that now yeah. we live in a, an, a world of terror. It's and, that Green Day song, Wake Me Up When September Ends. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, uh, I, I do think I do think that the whole country to a degree has post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. You know, that we all watch the towers fall on TV and 14 years later, we're, we're still waiting for the next building to collapse. You know, that nothing has changed. We're still right on the edge. We had a single case of Ebola in Texas. And the response of the country, the utter panic, you know, the the um, the alarm bells were all ringing like this is the end. In fact, a single person died in Texas, infected nobody. Um, and even if he had infected a couple other people, um, Ebola is tremendously hard to catch. It's not an easy illness to pass. Um, it's not like the common cold. Um, one person died of Ebola. Now, in the years leading up to the ACA, the, uh, the what's what's called Obamacare, who knows how many people died from their lack of health care because they couldn't get any kind of health care coverage. There was no panic about that. No one minded because it wasn't it wasn't this kind of splashy end of the world. It was just sort of casual, poor people dying, and that doesn't really affect us, so we don't need to worry about it. Um, and I, I, I find that a little bit tragic that we're now lurching from crisis to crisis. You know, we had a shooting um, in San Bernardino where, uh, you know, a couple extremists uh, um, allied with ISIS uh, killed a bunch of people. It was a terrible, terrible, terrible tragedy. And the response to it um, among some has been to ban any Muslims from coming to the country, even though we know statistically um, that that 
you know, 1% of 1% of 1% of all Muslims are terrorists, you know, or allied have terrorist sympathies. I mean, that's an incredibly small number out of the however many billions of Muslims. I think there's 1.5 billion Muslims on this planet. It's an incredibly small number. The panic about it seems so out of proportion to the steady drip drip of gun violence every single day in this country. You know, the kids shooting other kids, um, the the guy who's, you know, lost the kids and the wife took the restraining order against him and he has, you know, a six pack and gets his Bushmaster and shoots up the whole family, you know, and there doesn't seem to be any stomach or willpower to do anything about any of that. Um, and, and I just think it's because our, we've been totally knocked out of our, our sense of proportion and perspective has never recovered from 9-11. I hope it will someday. Well, I think to a certain degree. Well, I don't know if it will because, I mean, we've been in the midst of an ongoing automobile accident apocalypse killing what thirty thousand people a year? I, I, With the like, guns, we're talking about guns, or, no, no, or cars. cars, cars, cars. I mean, cars. We drive them all the time. I mean, forget being scared of of Muslims. You got to be terrorized before you get behind the wheel or get in a car. Because well, and a plane, a plane crashed. A plane crashed uh, over the Mediterranean uh, the other day, and the news. Boy, the news just. Loves a good plane crash. Mm. Just loves a plane crash. It's a plane crash all the time, you know, and, and it's terrible. It's really, really terrible. Everyone who drives to the airport is at so much greater risk of dying on the drive than in the flight. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's just beyond mad. And, the you know, it's the anyway. Sorry. <laughs> Drifting off the subject now. But I think that uh, you have a character in here, two characters whose last names are Story. Yeah, and mm. I think that uh, there's no coincidence about that because this novel and all of your work is infused with the power of story and the power of stories we tell ourselves, and you both use the story power of story to keep us engaged as readers, but also to uh, as create characters and create plots. And I'm like you to just talk about. Um, the way you deal with story, because I think you work it at a variety of levels. And I wonder how much of it is conscious and how much of it um, is just happens because you're you. Yeah, most of my approach to writing is pretty unconscious, and I think it has to be. Um, the 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 big it's writing a 700 page novel is too complicated an act and there are too many factors um it's like trying to predict weather um <laughs> the system is too complicated to figure everything out in advance and when when people try via outlines inevitably i feel you wind up with a sort of stiff lifeless story something that feels like you've intentionally create simplified the system so much mm -hmm. that it no longer has the organic feel of life um, the only way I think to write a really satisfying novel or short story is to do read a lot of books and do a lot of writing and gradually train yourself to create one good scene at a time. And then eventually you get a stack of good scenes that hopefully cohere, um, that connect with some sort of overarching narrative line. Um, but I don't know how you consciously find your way to that. You just sort of... 
you know, you sit down each morning and you try to write the next good sentence and you try to place every time you, you don't sit down to write a novel. You don't sit down to write a short story or a comic book or a screenplay. You just sit down to write one good scene to place your characters in a situation that will be interesting. And, and hopefully you get it, wind up with a stack of those scenes and that's a book. I, speaking of scenes, I love these scenes that um, involve the dragon scale, people who have the dragon scale communicate because they evoke two different kind of things. On one hand, there's this the great feeling of community and mm-hmm. the positive aspects of community. Right. And I'm just thinking, they remind me, there's a scene, if you recall, in uh, – uh, it's the Cronenberg movie. Uh, oh, which Cronenberg film are we talking about? With the um, scanners. Scanners. Love um, scanners. Yeah, so when I, I had to like when that movie terrified me so much, I had to see it about three times before I could sit through <laughs> the whole thing. But when I finally did, I really liked it, and I still do. And there's a scene where all the scanners are sitting together, and they're all kind of experiencing one another's thoughts. Right. And they're, it's a very blissful time for them, and it's about the only blissful time. Right. And I think that you uh, play with some of those same kind of uh, ideas here. And at one point, the characters, uh, Harper, who is part of this uh, thing, she says, Harper clamped down on a shutter. When they spoke of the bright, they had all the uncomplicated happiness of pod people. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's that war between how good it feels to be connected to your social group and, and... the lonely hard work of being an individual, which which on an intellectual level we know is important, but on an emotional level is so rarely satisfying. You know, it so rarely feels good to 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 be in the fortress of the self and not have that connection to everyone else and not all be sharing in the same feelings and and you know whereas that always that that always feels good to be part of the group and to all be at the concert when the ballad comes on and to pull out your cell phone like a thousand other people and and light up the screen to show you know what you're feeling to reflect the you know how how excited and happy and content you are just like the people around you to sort of give up your identity and just just be that group um um it's definitely one of the big subjects of of the story you know when i talk about how how there there are teenagers in the camp who discuss the dragon scale on their skin as just another social network, as just mm-hmm. another you know just another way to connect. And Harper thinks about when they all sing together and they light up and they get that that high and the you know, dragon scale is glowing. Um, she thinks of it as connecting with them, connecting to the people around her with a modem of the soul. Mm. Um, and and I you know and I like that idea. And I don't think I don't think that the social connection is bad. I don't think it's not. I don't think it's good either. I don't think it's inherently one thing or the other. I think that it's an evolutionary tool for survival, and you know, and tools are all the same. I mean, you can use a hammer to pound a nail. You can also use a hammer to pound in someone's face. Um, it's you know, uh, it depends entirely on your own impulses and what you're trying to accomplish. And you also point out something I think really interesting about the way we live now is that essentially especially since 9/11 we're all preppers i mean <laughs> <laughs> we're all preppers that's right because and uh, how uh, and a generation of xbox players are 
I mean, these people... They're ready for the apocalypse. They're ready ready to go. They're ready to start (laughs) collecting supplies and, you know, and um, leaving the bunker at night to uh, make raids on on the colony of... The next colony of degenerates, uh, you know, down in the the hollow who are, you know, roasting babies over the campfire. And, (laughs) and, uh, yeah, I I see the whole thing, no doubt. I... I love, uh, there's a, a great uh, literary <laughs> reference okay. in this book <laughs> uh, that has to do with Atlas Shrugged. Oh, yeah, yeah. At one point, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that what an ingenious way to, to make a literary reference. I don't think anybody's ever managed to accomplish that before. There's one fellow, who is, there's one fellow who is sneaking off uh, and uh, he's, he's, who's sneaking off from camp to achieve his own selfish goals and uh, someone follows him and for the first couple of days doesn't find him doing anything all that interesting except going off in the woods to take a dump and he's, he's for toilet paper he's brought along a book and I forget exactly what the book I forget what book he's brought with him. Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Yeah, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And and uh, the camp librarian, uh, Renee Gilmanton, says if she had known what he was going to use, she would have given him a copy of Atlas Shrugged <laughs> instead. Um, yeah, so, uh, um, but it was, she was kind of, Anne Rand was kind of a dystopian writer, too, in a way, except, you know, from coming at it from a different angle, wasn't, you know, wasn't she sort of like, you know, uh, taking Orwell on a right wing direction? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think she, her mind was di- a dystopian. Uh, I think experience. so. I think so. <laughs> Are you, uh, have you copyrighted the portable mother yet? I mean, that is a brilliant idea. You could just create that template for that and that would sell like, hot, that would be the most popular thing for I'll Mother's call Day. my publisher as soon as we're done talking yeah and no. make sure we're getting that getting that in the production line the uh, portable mother so Harper Harper doesn't believe she'll be able to if she does survive to deliver her baby and the baby is healthy she knows they won't be able to live together because there'll be too much risk of accidentally infecting the child so she'll never really get a chance to know her son and um, she begins a, a, a it starts as a book and eventually becomes a whole package called The Portable Mother. And it's all the things that she thinks a child might need um, to, you know, without who doesn't have a mother who's been deprived, you know. So, um, you know, it's got recipes for soup in it and it's got Band-Aids stapled inside the cover. And um, <clears throat> it's and it, that that was fun to write. I mean, you know, it's an extension of who Harper is, which is, you know, this person who wants to provide love and care, even if she can't be there. Um, and yeah, and I agree. And I think it's a tremendous publishing opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right on that. Uh, I love the the narrative thrust of this book, the way that you take us into this, this place and then keep us there uh, and as you say, kind of build things up slowly. Right. I, it's really a, it's a beautiful piece of storytelling. And well, you're uh, very kind. Thank you. Well, no, I I just got to live there. I mean, I get yeah. it's like a great place to spend a vacation. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but I hear that's well, an, that's an interesting sentiment. I don't know that anyone would really want a vacation in Camp Wyndham for too long. Certainly not once Mother Mother Story gets in charge. No, but I think that her character is really great. I mean. Her, what we see happen when when she gets in charge is one of the most compelling parts of the story. It's yeah. Not, and that's an interesting idea. It's this idea of repulsion and attraction combined at the same time. 
it gets even more compelling the worse things get. Why is that? I think I don't know, but I do think that the 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 ironic thing about Mother Carol is how much she loves the people in camp. Oh yeah, and how ready she is to die for them, and that her it's you know her her love um, just winds up being uh, this very poisonous thing. That's a little bit that's explored a little bit in the book as well. That um, you know love like community uh, is. I don't want to say a tool. That sounds so cold-blooded. But it's it's not necessarily either coal, uh, either good or bad. It could it could serve either purpose. Mm. It can be this tremendously positive thing in your life, you know. But it can also it can also wreck a life. It can also be um, paranoid, and uh, you know, love can come with suspicion and unhappiness, and you know, and, uh, tensions and ugliness unfair expectations i as just one of these little dweeby details that just completely sure. caught my mind the viewmaster <laughs> yeah that's part of the mother's that's part of the portable mother right yeah i was just thinking that how, how much that just evoked for me just the memories of having those things and i was thinking wow that's like an Oculus Rift that has – it's the same concept as Oculus Rift. It costs a fraction of Oculus Rift, and it actually works, and the software is much easier to yeah, update. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, one of the things I think about more and more – I have kids of my own, um, three boys, and I think how hard it must be for them to imagine what – what the world of my childhood was like when people didn't have cell phones in their pockets, mm. when there was what the, what it was like to be in the world when there was pre-internet and pre-cell phone, and you didn't, you know, you weren't, you could be out wandering around and you weren't accounted for, mm. you know, there was no expectation that someone could instantly get in touch with you all the time. The future is a very strange place. I never expected to wind up in the future, and here I am. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite things that you, I emotions that you deal with constantly in this book and well is guilt I love the feeling evoking the feeling of guilt and embarrassment I think hmm. those are those are emotions that are powerful that drive us more than we really would care to admit shame is a big driver mm. shame and avoiding shame avoidance right. is a big driver for behaving you know for being good yeah no doubt. I was thinking too. You were talking. I, you know, I've been, been been sort of as we've been talking here. I've been thinking about something you said about how long it took you to get through scanners. You know, watching it three <laughs> times. I was thinking about whether or not the fireman is a horror novel, and it's a big actiony, suspensey science fiction thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's more like it's more like an action filled summer picture hopefully a smart hopefully one of the smarter summer pictures but it's more like a it's more like a you know an or you're even a superhero story in some ways john rookwood is kind of sure 50 the human torch 50 you know, charlie mcgee from firestarter or something but but um but i do think that i do think that it has some pretty scary bits in it you know it's not a horror novel but it has some has some pretty scary bits in it and it's interesting how often horror novels are, or or horror films actually teach about the destructive power of fear, mm. so they're they're actually object lessons in 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 the dangers of the one particular emotion which they actually serve to activate, which is sort of a weird paradox, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> I I think you know I think how often. Um, those stories show that the person who can manage their fear and remain a decent, full, complete human being, even in the face 
of you know great danger and and darkness um how often that person turns out to be the survivor you know it's the people who succumb to panic that tend to be the first to go in these stories i've been speaking with joe hill his new novel is the fireman thank you for joining me joe rick what a blast this was great You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.